0: The scripture passage for uh, Pastor Charlie's sermon is going to be from John chapter 7, 53 through eight eleven. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, let him, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and
1: from now on, sin no more. Our Father, we thank you for your mighty mercy that has filled the earth from the day that Adam and Eve sinned until the present moment. And we thank you for your mighty mercy that is the heart of the story, and I pray that you would reveal it now. I pray that you would give us new wisdom, Father. I pray that you would give us new insight. I Pray that you would give us new resolve. I pray that you would show us the way that we should go. And I pray that you would give us all the power and desire that we need to walk in that way. And for what you will do, our Father, we give you our thanks and praise in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In almost all modern english translations of the bible whether they're popular or not popular john 753 through 811 are set off from the rest of the flow of the gospel of john usually by double brackets but sometimes uh, by italics In 1952, the editors of the Revised Standard Version of the Bible removed this story from the flow of the Gospel of John and put it into the margin with an explanatory note, but their readers were so outraged by what they did that on the next printing, not the next edition of that text, but the next printing, they put it back into the normal flow of the text, albeit with double brackets. Now, the reason that the translators and editors of of English versions and even non-English versions of the Bible set these, par- these verses apart from the flow of the Gospel of John is because they most certainly were not originally part of his manuscript. As the renowned New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce once wrote, he said these 12 verses are quote, missing from a variety of early Greek manuscripts from the earliest forms of the Syriac and Coptic Gospels from several Arminian, Old Georgian, and Old Latin manuscripts, and from the Gothic Bible. They constitute, in fact, a fragment of authentic gospel material not originally included in any of the four gospels, close quote. To be clear, Bruce is arguing that while this story is most likely true, it was not originally part of the gospel of John. Leon Morris puts it well when he writes this, quote, Throughout the history of the church, it has been held that whoever wrote it, this little story is authentic. It's authentic, it just was not originally in the Gospel of John. But if the church has known from ancient times that this story was not originally part of John's text, then how did it get there and why has it stayed there? Although we don't know the specifics of the story, it seems pretty certain that a group of scribes had access to the story they knew that the story was true, they knew that the story was valuable, and so together they looked for a proper home for this story. And it seems just from the manuscript evidence that we had that there was some disagreement among them because when you compare all the manuscripts that are available to us, it appears in at least five different places. Some of the Greek manuscripts put it after John 7:36. Some put it after John 7:44 most put it after John 752 where it is in almost all of our bibles probably all of our bibles some put it after John 2125 and believe it or not there's a whole family of manuscripts that actually place this story in the gospel of Luke they put it right after Luke 2138 because to them it seemed to fit better there so there was some disagreement about where this little story belonged but there was not disagreement about the fact that this story was almost certainly authentic. In other words, this story really happened it just wasn't actually noted originally in any of the gospels. The majority of our manuscripts, as I said, though, do put it between John seven fifty two and eight eleven. And the most likely reason that it actually found its home there is because it seems to illustrate what Jesus said in John seven twenty four and in John eight fifteen through sixteen. So, if you look real quickly at John seven twenty four, you'll see that Jesus uh, said there. He said to the religious leaders of the day. He told them, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And then if you look at chapter eight, verses 15 through 16, Jesus said, you all, you religious leaders, you love to judge according to the flesh. I judge no one, yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In other words, Jesus was saying, you just look at a situation and you render judgment from the wisdom of your own heart, I, the one who was sent from the Father, look to the Father, I listen to the Father, I discern the will of the Father for a given situation, and then I speak. And so most modern scholars feel that this little story found its home at this place of John because it illustrates both seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 24, and chapter 18, verses 15 through 16. Now you may wonder why it begins in chapter 753 rather than just going ahead and beginning chapter 8. I really don't know the story of how that little verse got out of one chapter and into the other, but I assume that it was intentional to bridge both of these chapters because in fact, John chapter 7 and chapter 8, tell us one story as we'll see more clearly uh, next week. So if that's how this story got there, why has it stayed there? If we know that it wasn't originally part of the Gospel of John, why don't we just put it at the back of the book or something like that? And the simple answer is that it has stayed there because it is authentic and Bible readers have become used to the story and they've become used to it being there. So that if Bible editors move this story elsewhere, there would be great outrage and it's just not worth the pain of all of that. There's just practical reasons why this story has stayed in this part of our Bibles. And so since it's there, we have to address the question, how are we to handle this in the life of the church? How should we preach a text like this from the pulpit and in evangelistic context when we're not really sure about the origins of it or how exactly it got into the Gospel of John? And my my counsel about this is very simple. I think that we are free to preach and teach this story on its own terms and with passion, but we have to be cautious about stories like this. The other major portion of scripture that is akin to this is the end of Mark chapter 16 where there's a very similar situation happening there. But as for this story, I think we're free to preach it with passion. We just have to be careful. And specifically, I think this is how we have to be careful. If there's any point of doctrine in this story that cannot be established in other portions of Scripture, then we can't accept that doctrine. Or if I can put it the other way around, as we're building our sense of what the Bible teaches, we can't cite this story as evidence of any given teaching. This story stands in the Bible, and there it is, and we, we can, uh, I think, profit from it, as I hope we'll profit from it today. But again, we need to build our doctrine from the rest of Scripture and just see this as a story that's there maybe for illustration purposes, But it's certainly not something upon which we can build any particular doctrine. So as for this morning, I'm now going to preach this story as though it's just a normal part of the Bible. I'm going to preach it with the passion and the the intensity that God has given me as I have studied it. But I want to invite you to listen carefully and I want to encourage you to test it by the rest of Scripture because I think that that kind of burden uh, rests upon us all. Since we don't know the original context of this story, we don't know exactly what it means to say that certain people went back to their homes and that Jesus went back to the Mountain of Olives, but in the end, it doesn't really matter because the more important point is that early on the next morning, Jesus went back into the temple complex. And when he went back into the temple complex, most likely in the outer courts, the story says that all of the people gathered to him. So just get the picture clear in your mind. He went to the temple, not to the innermost parts, but to the outer parts where the people, at least Jewish people, were welcome to gather. And he went to the place where most rabbis would sit and teach. But in his case, the Bible says here that all the people gathered to him. Now, it would be an exaggeration to say that every single person at the temple that day gathered to Jesus, but it would not be an exaggeration to say that everybody who saw him gathered to him. Everybody who was within earshot gathered to him and probably everybody in the temple complex who heard about him probably also gathered to him. The picture we ought to get is that it's not so much that every single human soul was gathered around Jesus in the temple that day, but there was a very large and a very unusual crowd in that place. And so as they did it in those days, Jesus sat down to teach and the people remained standing. Sometime after he began explaining to them the things of God, exactly what we do not know, the scribes and Pharisees took this as an opportunity to set before him a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. And they placed her, the Bible says, in the midst, which probably means that they stood her between where Jesus was sitting and where the crowd was standing. So this was not a private conversation held in a discreet place, which it should have been, Beloved, this was a public spectacle that happened in the sight of many, many people. It's important for us to notice that the author of this story mentions both the scribes and the Pharisees here because on the one hand, the scribes were experts in the law. And because they were so expert in the law, they were often called upon as legal consultants and they even served as lawyers. And then on the other hand, you had the Pharisees who had in their hands a tremendous amount of religious and cultural power. So in this particular setting, in this particular case, the partnership between the scribes and the Pharisees was a partnership between legal expertise and religious power. You see, they had gathered all the resources they needed to make an airtight case against this woman who had been caught in sin. Now, when the author says that this woman was caught, the Greek word there more literally means to seize or to apprehend, which means that not only did they catch her in the act of a sin, at whatever phase of that sin they caught her, but they actually arrested her. Make sure you have the picture clear in your minds here. She is not simply under the physical control of powerful people, beloved. She is under arrest, She is now subject to the law of the lands, of the land with regard to her actions. She is in big trouble. while she would have been very clear about this fact, she probably was confused and she probably was enormously ashamed that she was forced to stand before this Jesus who she may or may not have even known. And she was forced to stand in front of an unusually massive crowd of people. Now, when the scribes and Pharisees arrived, Jesus likely stood back up to hear what they had to say, even though he knew who he was and who they were, he still showed respect to whom respect was due. And without hesitation, one of their leaders looked to him and said this in verses four through five. Teacher, which by the way was a term of respect in those days, but here I think it's said sarcastically. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. So this is not an issue of rumor, beloved. They actually, some of them at whatever stage of the process, caught her in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. In other words, to put them to death. So what do you say? The author tells us in verse six that in asking this question, the scribes and Pharisees were not there to consult Jesus. Please understand, they asked the question, but they did not want his opinion. They were there to test him, and much worse than that, they were looking for a way to charge him in a court of law, so they were actually there to trap him, and I wanna help us to see that they set a double trap. Trap number one was this, if Jesus said, or if Jesus in any way diminished or dismissed the law of Moses with regard to this woman's case, he could be charged with being a false teacher and he could be punished up to and including death. Trap number one. Now, self-righteous legalists are very, very skilled at presenting the parts of truth that make their case against other people while ignoring the parts of truth that imply them, that make them complicit, that bring their own sin to the fore. And so what I wanna do with you right now is look at the parts of the law of Moses that address what should be done with those caught in adultery so that we can see whether or not they're being faithful to the word. With that, would you please turn with me to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. If you don't know your Bible well, start at the beginning and make a right turn. It's the third book in, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And then all the chapters are numbered. So look for Leviticus chapter 20, and I wanna read with you just verse 10. In the law of Moses, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and actually the direct ministry of Jesus in his life, Moses wrote this. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, now there the word neighbor doesn't just mean the person that you live right next to on either side. The word neighbor in this case means the people that you rub shoulders with on a daily basis. So if a man commits adultery with the wife of someone that is in the sphere of his life, these are people that know each other, and he ends up committing adultery with her, then both the adulterer, both the man and the adulteress, the woman, shall surely be put to death. Please note that the emphasis is not just on the woman. Now turn two more books to the right, Numbers and then Deuteronomy. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 22. Deuteronomy 22:22 through 24 is the other place where this whole topic is very explicitly addressed. There are other texts we could look at, but these are the two major ones. Deuteronomy 22:22. By the inspiration of the Spirit, Moses wrote, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman so you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a betrothed virgin, we use the word engaged, but for them the word betrothed was a legal category, somebody who was set aside to marry another, and for them that was a very serious legal category. If a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. In at least these two places, beloved, the law of Moses condemns the man and the woman caught in adultery, and it prescribes the death penalty for both of them. So it is surprising to say the least that the scribes and Pharisees brought the woman before Jesus and didn't even say a word about the man. It's possible that the man was not there for circumstantial reasons. In other words, some commentators suggest that perhaps he was just fast and when they were caught, he was more fleet of foot and he ran away from the scene and they did not have him in their possession. But even in that case, why didn't they mention the man? Why didn't they make mention of the fact that a woman cannot commit adultery alone? It seems that self-righteous legalists love to expose and punish the sins of others while finding a way to turn a blind eye to their own sin. It seems from this story and from many other evidences we have of this time of the history of Israel that powerful men in Israel had found a way to blame women for sexual sin while pretty much excusing themselves from almost every situation. Now, Before we move on in the rest of the story, I do wanna take just a minute to address the fact that adultery is being punished uh, with the death penalty here. To modern sensibilities, that is just outrageous, isn't it? If we're all being really honest with each other, if you sat, if we caught somebody in the act of adultery right here at this church and I hauled them in front of the church and said this person should be put to death, what would you think of me? You probably would fire me on the spot. Even as Christian people, it just seems outrageous to us that people would pay with their lives for the act of adultery. But I wanna suggest to you that the reason we feel this way is because we've lost a sense of the vision of the sacredness of gender, marriage, and sexuality. And when I say we, I'm not just talking about American culture, I'm also talking about the church. We have largely, become blind to the beauty of what God has created and the excellence of his wisdom in what he has created with regard to gender, marriage, and sexuality. And thus, we have come to the place where we no longer think that sexual sin is really that big of a deal. If we thought sexual sin was really that big of a deal, there'd be a whole lot less people in the church caught up in sexual sin, albeit many of us hide it well. We don't think sex and gender and marriage is really that important, is really that sacred. But from God's point of view, beloved, what he created in gender, marriage, and sexuality is so sacred, it's so beautiful, it's so wise, it is so beneficial for all of humanity, it is so glorifying to his name that he said through Moses and by his Holy Spirit that anybody who violates what he created in certain ways does not deserve the life that he granted to them. Life comes from God. It does not belong to us. We do not deserve the life we have, beloved. And he alone is the creator of all things, gets to dictate the terms of the life that he has given. And in this particular case, what he has said is that these things are so sacred that if you violate them, I'm going to take your life from you. He has every right to do that. He has every right. And I just want to encourage us. Rather than being outraged at God, rather than being offended by God, rather than impugning the name of God outside of this context for prescribing the death penalty for such a sin, we ought to take some time to think about why he did that We're gonna take some time to put ourselves in God's shoes and say, why is this so valuable to him that he would prescribe a penalty like that? It's not just harsh Middle Eastern stuff, beloved. This is coming from the heart of God. Because I think that if we'll put ourselves in God's place here, if we'll try to see things from his perspective, we will come to see the beauty and the utter value of what it is that he has done. He thinks so much of gender, sexuality, and marriage in the way that he created it that he puts the death penalty to those who violate it. That's how he feels. That's how he thinks. Now we're gonna come back to this in a little bit. But getting back to the story, trap one was that if Jesus affirmed the law of Moses and said yes, this, uh, or, or if Jesus denied or diminished in any way the law of Moses and said this woman should not die, he could be accused of playing loose and fast with the words of God. He could be accused of being a false teacher. He could be punished even unto death. Trap two is harder for us to see, and it is this. If Jesus upheld the law of Moses, if Jesus said, yes, this is the word of God, she was caught in sin, we've established it by the testimony of several witnesses, so she shall die. If he said that, he could be charged by the Roman government with sedition and also put to death. The Romans did not allow the Jews to enact the death penalty. They reserved that right for themselves. Any Jew caught trying to enact the death penalty would themselves die. This is why the Jews didn't kill Jesus. They had to hand him over to Pilate you see what they're trying to do? If Jesus says, yes, I affirm the law of Moses, he dies. If Jesus denies the law of Moses, he also at least is in prison, but he might also die. There's a a double trap here, beloved. And I want us to understand that whatever the the, the truth is about the, the Pharisees and scribes and this woman, they did catch her in sin. She was guilty of that sin, but please understand that their primary concern was not her sin. Their primary concern was his ministry. They were not out to condemn her. They're out to condemn him. They were not so much wanting to take her life, they were wanting to take his life. She was a pawn in their religious power games. That's what's happening here. This primarily is about them and it's about Jesus. But having said that, they did pose a question to him in public and the hearing of a lot of people And surely everybody waited with bated breath to hear what he would have to say. Jesus was no fool and he is no fool. He saw right through their ruse. He saw right into the depth of their heart and he refused to engage in their power games. You can check the scripture to see if I'm right about this or not, but anytime anybody asked a legitimate question of Jesus, he answered their question, even when it was the scribes and Pharisees. But when people tried to play games with him and trap him, he refused to play the game, and that's what he did here. So instead of saying anything, he just stooped back down and wrote with his sacred finger upon the ground. He was not afraid of them, beloved. He was not afraid to suffer at the hand of anyone if that was his father's will. But he was not willing to participate in the fleshly designs of self-righteous people who actually had murder on their minds. Now, have you ever wondered what Jesus wrote when he moved his finger along the ground? Of course, there has been speculation about this for centuries. Many people have written many things about it. There's no way for us to know for sure. And so there's, there's really no place for any of us to be dogmatic about it. But the author mentions this in this verse and also again in verse eight, two times we hear that Jesus stooped down and wrote upon the ground. So the story itself is inviting us in to speculate about this. We should be wise with our speculation. We should not be dogmatic about our speculation, but I think we are invited to speculate. So let me just give you a few options and it might be a combo deal. There maybe have been more than one thing going on here. It's possible. That when Jesus traced his finger upon the ground, he was drawing to mind the fact that he had created Adam from the ground of the earth because the exact Greek language that's used here to describe what Jesus was doing is mirrored in Genesis when it talks about the creation of Adam. He might have been drawing, if nothing else, to his own mind the fact that he created a man to be in a lifelong covenant with a woman so that they would love one another and out of an overflow of that love have dominion in the earth and out of the overflow of that love create other human beings and fill the earth as a way of imaging the beauty of the love between God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or maybe, as he traced his finger upon the ground, he had in mind the fact that he himself was the one up on that sacred mountain who wrote the law with his finger upon the stone tablets and in the very sight of Moses. He may have been drawing to mind the fact that he knew the contents and the intent of the law of God better than the scribes, better than the Pharisees, better than Moses himself. It's possible and some have suggested that he was writing scripture on the ground, either the words of a verse or perhaps just the reference points if that is so, maybe he had Jeremiah seventeen thirteen in mind. Don't turn there, because this will go by quick, but just, just listen to what Jeremiah seventeen thirteen says. It would certainly put the situation in context. O oh Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Not just the adulterers and adulteresses. Adulter all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. So maybe the Lord drew that verse to mind to convict the accusers that were there on that day. Or it may be, some have suggested, in fact, there are some early manuscripts that inserted this into the text because they were wanting people to believe their point of view. But that was clearly a later edition They suggested that maybe Jesus was writing the names of the sinners in the dirt. So there are the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus just started writing names of certain guilty parties. Others said, no, he wasn't writing their names, he was writing their particular sins. And who knows, beloved, maybe the reason the man wasn't there along with the woman being accused is because maybe the man was one of those scribes or one of those Pharisees. We'll just never know the particulars of the matter. We'll never know exactly what Jesus wrote upon the ground. But as for the scribes and Pharisees, they were neither moved by what he did or satisfied with his actions. You'll see there in verse seven that they kept pressing their question upon him. And when you keep pressing, especially when powerful people keep pressing a question, their volume level probably went up and up and up. They were insisting and then demanding that Jesus rise and answer. And as they continued pressing him, at some point moved by the heart of his father, he did decide to stand up And he did speak his mind. In my mind's eye, I see Jesus standing and very calmly, but firmly surveying the scribes and Pharisees and making eye contact with every single one of them. And then when the time was just right, he looked at their spokesman and said the words of verse 7. Let him who is without sin among you, among you self-righteous scribes and Pharisees, let him go ahead and throw a stone at her. Now the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 13.9 and 17.7 says this. It says that if a person catches another person in a capital offense, like adultery, all right? And if they bring that person to a court of law and they testify against that person, the people who bore the witness had to be the first ones to throw the stones. And then after they threw their stones, the other people could join in, and in this way they would purge the evil from Israel. In their culture, the accusers had to be part of the punishers. This was a way of helping them to establish what was true or what was not true. So when Jesus said what he said, go ahead, throw the first stone. They knew that he was drawing upon the words of Scripture. That's often lost on us, but believe me, it was not lost on them. And in addition to that, I think Jesus was saying that if any one of them had not also committed a capital offense of some sort against God, so that they were just as much in need of the mercy of God as this woman, that they were free to cast the stones of judgment upon her. They should be that woman's judge unto death. And by this, I don't think he was implying that all sin is the same, or that in the end, sin doesn't really matter. I just think he was implying that there's a greater relational context to the judgments that are prescribed in the law. There's more in the law than brutal judgment. You cannot simply read brutal judgment, see somebody in the act, and put the two together without any thought, without any prayer, without any discernment. There's more in the law than judgment, beloved. And specifically, what I'm talking about is mercy. The law of God is filled with the mercy of God. Those who say that the Old Testament God is a God of wrath know nothing about the Old Testament. It is filled with the mercy of God because the heart of God Beats with mercy. Do you remember those sacred words that God himself revealed to Moses when he showed Moses his glory? Some of the most important words in all the Bible. These words have come to shape all the rest of Scripture and all the ways that we should envision the character of God. Exodus 34, five, or six through seven. Let me just read these things for you. He said to Moses, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. I am slow to anger. I don't just fly off the handle. I am abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, which more likely should be translated keeping steadfast love to the thousandth generation, which pretty much means forever, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation, which usually means to the generation of those who are living while the sinner himself or herself is still alive. We learn from these crucial verses that God is not lax about sin, beloved. He's not even close to making light of sin. However, we learn from these verses that in his heart, he prefers wise mercy over brutal judgment please remember that god prefers wise mercy not just mercy dispensed without wisdom he prefers wise mercy over brutal judgment god will judge unto death if he must but he would rather shower his grace upon whomever he can whenever he can Now, in the reformed world, we believe that God is sovereign over all things and that he has created objects of mercy and objects of wrath, but don't let that keep you from hearing all that scripture has to say. When Peter said that God wishes that no one would perish in their sin, it means it. Yes, God will judge guilty, unrepentant sinners, and yes, he will judge them for eternity. Yes, that's true, but please don't get the idea in your mind that God enjoys that. Please don't think that the Lord delights in punishment, that he delights in wrath. His heart prefers wise mercy over brutal judgment any day of the week. Beloved, we need to understand that it was not wrong for the scribes and Pharisees to take seriously the issue of adultery. In fact, if they did not take it seriously, that would have been the problem. It was not wrong for the scribes and Pharisees to take seriously a person caught in the act of adultery. They were the shepherds of Israel. They were supposed to apply the law of God to the people of God. This was their duty. And even just as people who supposedly had a relationship with God, this was a kind of internal obligation. It was not wrong for them to take seriously the actual persons involved. That's not where the problem lies. But you know what they should have done? And I'm telling you, this is why this story was put here because it fits with the theme of chapter seven and eight. They love to just judge without conversation and pronounce judgment without any consultation. Here's what they should have done. They catch the people in adultery. They should have sat them down to find out about the details of what happened and why. More importantly, they should have discerned the hearts of both parties after the fact of the sin. They should have seen what was in the heart. Is there any desire For repentance in the heart, is there any sorrow? Is there any brokenness? Is there any willingness to bow the life before God and walk away from that way of life? And having seen the hearts of the people, they should have sought the will of God through the word and through prayer and through conversation. And then having, by those means, discerned what God's will was for this particular situation, then they should have applied justice or they should have applied mercy as God led them to do. And please hear me, if there was no repentance and they were forced to carry out the most brutal version of the law possible there, death, then they should have done that with tears in their eyes and not with venom on their lips. Do you see that? If we have to enact justice in the world, then so be it. I recently watched a documentary about Timothy McVeigh. That man had to die. But I'm going to tell you something. If I was at his execution, I would have been crying, not smiling. We should be grieved at brutal judgment, beloved. We should not celebrate it. They were there enjoying justice. They loved their self-righteous, idolatrous position. And the truth is, they were murderers. They were there under a conspiracy to commit murder against Jesus. So you tell me if their sin was any better than this woman's sin. Beloved, again, their heart toward adultery was not the problem. The problem was they had no heart for God. They had no sight of his mercy. That's all through the law. Those who know the law should hear the phrase ringing because it's repeated over and over again, especially in Leviticus and Numbers. For those who uh, follow God's prescription for sin, they shall be forgiven. The law says over and over and over again. And we know from Hebrews 10.4 that the blood of bulls and goats, the the animal sacrifices never took away the sin of anyone. We know that. But all that blood pointed toward a greater blood. All that blood pointed toward the day when Jesus Christ would sacrifice his infinitely valuable blood on the cross and by his grace and mercy, God the Father looked toward that future blood and he applied to his people Israel the forgiveness that comes through Christ and was being, it was metaphorically seen in animal sacrifice. The law is shot through with mercy and any sinner caught in their sin, should have been given a chance to repent, they should have been given a chance to bow down, they should have been given a chance to speak. And beloved, I fear that many of us evangelical Christians are not that different from the scribes and Pharisees. We love to catch people in sin and we love to pronounce judgment and we need to stop loving these things. This doesn't mean that we compromise morality, it just means that we see the fullness of the heart of God and we're looking for a path toward, for mercy. Any Is there anywhere where we can get the mercy of God into the situation? And then if we have to pronounce judgment, we do so with a broken heart. We do so with tears in our eyes, beloved. We don't enjoy the application of brutal justice. We don't enjoy it. With his words, Jesus masterfully avoided these traps by upholding the law of Moses, Not only the content, but the intent of it. In fact, he brought it to a deeper place than they were bringing it. But he also avoided the charge of sedition because he never pronounced the death penalty upon this woman in the courts of the Lord. And by the way, when the Lord invited these guys to go ahead and start throwing their stones, he knew what he was doing. He knew that whoever started throwing their stones was also gonna be under the charge of sedition by the Roman government. So in this way, he turned their trap right back on them. Now what are you gonna do, legalists, self-righteous people? Now what are you gonna do? Are you gonna uphold the law or are you gonna deny the law? Having turned their traps back on them, Jesus stooped back down again and he began to write with his finger on the ground. And as he did so, his words and his wisdom landed upon the scribes and Pharisees with such force that one by one, they dropped their stones of brutal judgment and they actually left the scene. Perhaps the oldest among them heard the depth of what Jesus was saying. Perhaps he felt convicted about his sin, and I don't mean just in general, but perhaps it really nailed him that he was there under a conspiracy to commit murder, and he knew that the Lord got him, and maybe he felt sorry about it. Maybe there was true repentance in his heart when he dropped his stone of judgment and walked away. And maybe one younger than him saw what he did and knew that because that one was older and he was younger, he pretty much had to follow suit. But this second one wasn't so happy about it. This second one was upset that Jesus had avoided their trap. The the second one was upset that Jesus had outwitted them. And in his mind, he was determined to find some other trap in which to catch Jesus. But for the moment, he felt he had no choice, so he dropped his stone and walked away. Maybe one still younger than both of them fell under the conviction of sin because he himself was an adulterer. And he himself had been putting on the face of a perfect religious person, but in fact he was engaged in sexual sin. And maybe whatever he said on the outside, maybe on the inside, he just knew that for him to throw his stone at that woman would be to heap condemnation on himself, so he dropped his stone and walked away. And maybe one still younger than all of them just didn't really know what to think or didn't know what to feel, didn't know what to make of the situation, but he knew that he had to go too. And so he dropped his stone and walked away. Whatever the various thoughts and motives of the Pharisees and scribes, every single one of them dropped their stones and left the scene until Jesus was left alone with the woman, albeit this larger crowd was still gathered there. And there the woman stood, surrounded by many people, and probably gazing at the stones that had been dropped, wondering what Jesus would have to say and what he would do now that her accusers had left. And with such a powerful moment in his grasp, with such a vulnerable woman in his grasp, Jesus asked her a question, and then he made two statements to her that would probably, we'll find out when we get to heaven, transform her life forever and ever. You'll see in verse 10 that he asked her this question. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Now that Jesus used the word condemned rather than accused, means that he's not asking a practical question. He's not saying like, hey, where'd everybody go? He's asking a legal question. You see, in the law of God, specifically in Deuteronomy 17, six, it's said that when the death penalty was prescribed, it had to be established by the testimony of at least two or three witnesses. Jesus is asking her a legal question. Is there anybody left who's willing to testify against you in a legal sense? The woman, probably with her head bowed, probably with a lot of shame in her heart, maybe she was even sobbing as she spoke, said, no one, Lord. And maybe even Jesus had to say, I'm sorry, but I didn't hear you. What did you say? And through her tears, she again said, no one, Lord. Now, sometimes a person's words reveal their heart, and sometimes a person's lack of words reveal their heart. And in this case, Kimmy helped me see the other night that this woman's lack of words is really the one place where we get a glimpse into what's happening inside of her heart because she did not take any time to try to defend herself here. She could have and she didn't. She did not take any time to blame her accusers or to say, yeah, Lord, but, yes, but they did this and that. She just humbly bowed herself before Christ. What else could she do? And she said, no one, Lord, there's no one who remains to accuse me. Beloved, I believe this woman was not only broken, but she was humbled before God. And seeing her inner heart more than her physical demeanor, Jesus said the first word of advice or counsel, uh, a wisdom that he had to say to her. In verse 11, he looked at her and said, and maybe he asked her, woman, please lift your eyes up, Look, look at me. Neither do I condemn you. That's a sentence of liberation, beloved. Whatever the woman or the crowd thought about Jesus, his statement displayed the fact that he had the power to judge and he had the power to forgive. And with all the authority that the Father had vested in him, with all the depth of communion that he had without the Father and without ceasing, he knew that the right thing to do was not to pronounce brutal judgment upon her, though she deserved it, but it was to pronounce a sentence of mercy upon her. It was to liberate her from the rightful consequences of her sin. But having said that, I wanna be clear that I don't think Jesus forgave her simply because he was trying to be the merciful one in the situation. I don't think he was trying to show himself better than his self-righteous counterparts I think that if she deserved death, he would not have feared to pronounce that sentence, no matter what it cost him with other people. He would have done the right thing. I know the story is silent here, so this is conjecture on my part, but I think Jesus saw her heart and saw the humility, saw the brokenness, saw the sorrow, saw the willingness to repent, and for that reason, he offered her mercy. And for that reason, he then commanded her to live in a new way. Look what he said at the end of verse 11. First of all, neither do I condemn you. And then he said, go, and from from now on, sin no more. Now, by adding these words, beloved, Jesus was inviting this woman to honor the grace of God by living according to the wisdom of God in her life having seen that God is not like the scribes and Pharisees, having seen the glory of who God really is, Jesus invited her to honor the one who had just removed her shame. What I'm trying to say is that his statement was less about morality and it was more about love for God. He was not mainly saying, now go, out, go away from here and repent of sexual sin. That's not the primary thing he was saying. He was primarily saying, now go away from here and learn what it means to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength so that you'll value his wisdom and his will and his ways and walk according to the things that he tells you to do because they're meant for his glory and for your good. Of course, Jesus was calling this woman to repent. But please hear me the heart of repentance is renewed love for God. Repentance is not primarily about morality, it's primarily about love. Now having said that, Jesus' command does show that he was not lax about sin or loose with the law, that's for sure. As Paul later wrote and as we sang in a song earlier today, the mercy of God is designed to lead us to repentance. And repentance is founded on the idea that the will and wisdom and words of God are better than any other will or words or wisdom. But even having said that, I want to come back to the point. Repentance is not primarily about morality, it's primarily about love. Repentance is looking at God in the face and then saying, God, you're right about the things that you have said. I humble myself before you. And the truth of the matter is that if the scribes and Pharisees had humbled themselves, they too could have become objects of mercy just as much as this humble woman, both in terms of righteousness and in terms of mercy. What I mean is that Jesus, by perfectly submitting his life to the Father, fulfilled the call of righteousness that is upon every single human soul, even the self-righteous soul. And by being obedient all the way to death on a cross, Jesus Christ paved the path toward the very mercy that was foreshadowed by the law. For not long after this story transpired, the scribes and the Pharisees and their allies took again up their deadly stones and they hurled them, not at this woman, but at Jesus. They conspired against him until he was arrested and put to death on the cross. But in so doing, they played into the hands of God who through the suffering of Jesus fashioned the way toward the mercy that was extended to that woman that day and that was extended to any scribe or Pharisee who also humbled themselves before the Lord and was extended to anyone in the crowd who humbled themselves and that will be extended to any one of us in this room today that also humbles ourselves before God. As it says again in Hebrews 10, 4, the blood of bulls and goats takes away the sin of exactly no one. But the infinitely valuable blood of Jesus Christ spilled for sinners removes the sin of everyone who humbles himself or herself before him. You see, on the cross, Jesus received the brutal justice of the law that was due to every single one of us. That w- that's what was happening on the cross. That's why it had to be so violent, that's why it had to be so drastic because that's what our sin actually deserves. He took the brutal justice into himself so that he could extend mercy to all who would humble themselves. That's how great, that is how gracious our God is. So whatever the historical origins of this story, I wanna emphasize again, I couldn't find a single scholar this week that thinks this was not a true story, maybe misplaced in the gospel, but it's a true story. I think that the best way we could honor this story today is by humbling our hearts in the presence of Christ. Some of us are self-righteous legalists. and We need to humble ourselves before Christ. Some of us are involved in sexually immoral things, whether we're open about that or not. And it's time for us to humble ourselves before Christ. And so I can't imagine any other way of ending this service but to invite you to bow yourselves before him. As the worship team comes up now and begins to play, I want to encourage you, if you need to kneel where you're at, if you need to sit where you're at, If you need to come up front here and bow yourself before the Lord, you're free to do that. If you want to come up and pray with me after the service, you're you're, you're free to do that. Mainly what I want to say to you is whatever God is calling you to do in this moment, do not let the moment of mercy pass you by. This is not just a story. We are in the presence of the merciful God who is here to dispense mercy both to self-righteous people and to sinful people caught in their sin. So let me pray now, and then the worship team will lead us. And I want to, again, I want to just encourage you to do whatever it is the Lord is calling you to do this morning. Our Father, whatever the historical details, I just want to thank you for preserving this story for us. I have been captivated by this story for about five weeks. I've been, it's been almost impossible. Even when I was on vacation, I couldn't stop thinking about the story. And Lord, you know more than anybody that you have used it to minister so deeply to my heart and so deeply to my life. And I'm just so grateful for it. All the historical, textual stuff, we leave that to you. But I thank you for the story itself. And I thank you that you're a God of justice. I thank you that you're a God of truth. I thank you that you care so much about the things that you have passion for, that you prescribe punishment for those who violate them. I thank you, in other words, that you're a God who has integrity, that you're a God of holiness. And I also thank you that you're not a brutal God. I thank you that you're the one who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And I pray, Lord, that you would teach us to humble ourselves before you now so that we'll receive mercy and not brutal judgment. I thank you for putting our judgment upon Jesus on the cross. And I pray, Father, that you would teach us now how to just humble ourselves and receive the mercy that he provided for us. Lord, we thank you for what you've spoken through this story and we thank you for what you'll do with these remaining moments now. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray, amen.